0: Welcome to The Deal with Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm Joel Wipperfirth, Director of Digital Transformation at Winfield United.
1: And I'm John Zook, Agronomist for Winfield United.
0: Today, John and I are going to dive into the hot topic of conversation that's on the minds of farmers and consumers alike. The effect of long-term weather patterns on farm management. John, as you know, year-to-year variability is expected when it comes to changing weather patterns. But do you think we're seeing any trends that will impact farming in the long-term? Season length, potential, less operating days, those sorts of things. You know, if I'm sitting here today and I've got 30 crops left to plant, if you consider every farmer plants 40 crops in their career, if I've got 30 crops left to plant, what are the long-term trends to be aware of? I like that every farmer plants 40 crops.
1: That means farmers actually retire. Yeah, I haven't seen many of them do that. I've seen a few that retire. And they actually let somebody else make the decision on their farm? Yeah,
0: percentage-wise, it's not high. But speaking for my own farm, I'm not sure my dad will ever retire.
1: Yeah, so that's typically the way that we would see it happen. But, uh, but yeah, really, the 40 crops thing, I mean... It, that's a pretty valuable insight that you go, geez, you got 40 chances or maybe 50, right? Or 30 good ones. And maybe this one you'd go, well, is it a weather pattern? Is this a trend? Is this just a funky year? Sometimes I find myself wondering that is, is this just a year and next year will just be normal? Or what is the trend? And so a lot of what I go back to is trying to fall year over year, right? Where are we at a percentage different? You can look at, anybody can use the Google machine and look up, the 30 year trend and say, here's where we're at, this is where we're going. And then you can have a fancy argument about global climate change or whatever it needs to be. But because I work with a lot of the answer plots, I get to see we have uh, John Deere Field Connects or weather stations at each one of them, and you kind of get to see rainfall growing degree days from planting date and compare that from year to year. So to give you a little bit of an idea, for 2019 season right now, if I'm looking at growing degree days, my growing degree days, and this is from southern Minnesota across all the plots, are ranging anywhere from from 13 to 20% less than last year or less than the average. If I look at rainfall, I'm 2 to 15% above average. So you kind of go put that into a trend. If I see that every couple years from plot to plot, now I'd say, hey, maybe we're trending up. Um, I was listening to a podcast on the way up that said, hey, back in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, typically in Southern Minnesota, we were getting 28 inches of rain. And now every 10 year comes out and now we're getting 30. 36, 37 and a half inches of yearly precipitation. So, we do see some trends upward in the precipitation as far as where those long term weather effects are coming. The interesting part is how have we adapted in agriculture to fit those trends and have we done it in such a fashion that we've actually recognized, hey, we're doing this because the weather is changing? I'm not sure that we always have adapted because that was the front of mind, right? But if you look back, maybe that's why we're seeing more nitrogen side dress, more different techniques and going later into the season as far as above ground applications, those sorts of things
0: when you talked about that, it divides it into two factors for me. And maybe we can discuss two of those factors. One of them is what's actually going on in the climate. What, how is the climate actually changing and is different than what it was in the last 25-year pattern or in the last hundred years? But the farming practices and those things, those are more about the crops that we're planting, how those genetics have advanced, and how the adaptability of the crops have changed as germplasm began to be sourced locally. So when element of a good show, John, is always the element of surprise. So I'm going to share with you a map of the center of the Corn Belt from 1950 to where the center of the Corn Belt is in 2012. And John and I are, you know, looking at the the phone here. Just so
1: you know, Joel like Googled something on his phone and he zoomed in with his fingers and the map is blurry. All I can see is like maybe some lines that outline states and some blurry numbers on there. Okay, so the resolution's right? a little bit poor, but here here's what it says. Welcome it says, to the 21st century, Joel. Yeah,
0: I, it, so this wasn't hand-drawn. This wasn't Lewis and Clark that wrote this down, but this is actually Elwynn Taylor at Iowa State. Got it. And Ellen Taylor, you know, in 1950, talks about the center of the Corn Belt being located in somewhere around south to mid-central Illinois And it moves north for about 30 years into northern Illinois, and then it starts to move west from about 1987 to 2012 into uh, southeast Iowa. So it's interesting, for about 20 years it moved north, and for another 20 years it kind of moved west. And so you're seeing areas in the Corn Belt in particular of Nebraska and South Dakota and Minnesota
1: starting to be relevant in the production of corn. Mm -hmm. So those dots that you showed me, that was a trend of where those midpoints of growing degree days were being found. I don't know if I follow Elwin closely enough to cite any of his research or his data that he has there, but I have seen definitely and felt that trend and most of us have on where that's going and how we sit in it based on where you're located.
0: Yeah, so one of those pieces that's in there, aside from heat units shifting around, is uh, rainfall patterns are continually shifting around. And there's the current pattern that we're in, you know, I loved what you said. You had some air quotes around the term normal. And one of the growers I used to work with, a guy by the name of Pat, I was a young agronomist. And I said, well, you know, in a normal year, and he stops me right there. And he says, young man, I just want to tell you at this point forward, normal is just a setting on your washing machine. hmm so you know and I, it always stuck with me so you know Pat if you're listening to this I get it normal's just a setting on my washing machine it doesn't exist anymore but one of the departures from normal is that rainfall amounts are higher in volume so more rainfall all at once mm-hmm. and fewer and farther between so setting your soil drainage properties up for you know something like two to three inch rain over an hour versus you know a, a tenth over you know a tenth a tenth a tenth you know five days in a row. That's one of the things that we're seeing is more intense rainfall. If that trend continues, John, what are two or three things that I can do to set up my farm to handle more water at a higher volume in that weather pattern.
1: So I think some of the lower hanging fruit there would be maybe potentially a change in tillage practice. And so we're not talking dramatic, like no-till versus conventional chiseled plow or plowed ground, whatever it might be. Did I just say a swear word, Joel? No, Is that why I, you I just on your slurped
0: water? into the, into the microphone. Oh,
1: you gleeked so, into it? Yeah. Got <laughs> it. I think it'll be okay. So I think the tillage practice does come down to it. And I think the biggest thing with tillage practice is that's the way that your soil takes and handles water. And that's kind of like the surface. So I think of tillage as, you know, your skin, right? You can put sunscreen on, you can wear a raincoat. That's your exposure to the outer environment. Same thing with the tillage part of it is that's the exposure surface layer to the soil, seeing its outer environment and how it's going to handle it. And a lot of times tillage practice trends with what the weather is gonna be doing. The thing that comes along with tillage practice that would fit into this and how to manage these long-term weather trends and optimization, preferably, is nutrient placement. I mean, because a lot of times when you change tillage practice, you also change the way you position nutrients, Mm. whether that's a nitrogen application. I mean, that's the easy one because it's mobile. But if you think about, should you do a P and K broadcast or should you do a band or should you do a tillage zone, right? All those things come into play. And that might be indicative of, well, is your soil temperature warmer than normal? So you get more phosphorus activity or availability earlier in the season. Or do you have more rainfall so your clays are releasing more potassium to the soil. So a lot of those things that we don't think about maybe come into more play as we go forward. So those would probably be my big two of, hey, tillage practice might allow us to accept some of those more extremes, change it. And then how do we apply those nutrients to optimize plant uptake?
0: You know, I, I think you mentioned something there, change tillage practices. And a lot of times farmers will associate the changing of tillage practices with, you know, will I lose yield because of it? Um, one of the agronomists I used to work with, uh, you know, since retired would always talk about, you know, I think the path to 300 bushel corn is paved through a continuous corn rotation. And one of the principles he was working off of there is, you know, the carbon sequestration capability of corn, mostly being in the corn plant's ability to take carbon CO2 from the air and store it below ground in the root system. And then for that plant to generate enough biomass that you would actually increase organic matter late season organic matter is where your mineralization comes from and is where you know all that extra push to finish out the crop comes from Corn being the one that generates more biomass than soybeans or wheat, that's one of the things that's really interesting to think about is your rotation is one of the ways that you might adapt to climate change or to weather patterns that are shifting. And whether that be keeping something planted on the ground more year-round through cover crops or planting more crops that sequester more carbon and build organic matter in the soil is another way to think about how this long-term climate might impact what
1: your farming operation choices are. So I don't know where this comment is going to go, but I do want to bring it up because you made me think about it. But I think we all have spots in our fields where fertility might be the same, pH might be right, drainage might be good. But say there's two different spots and one yields 180, one yields 240, why? And you go, wow. Why is that different like that? I've, I put fertility to it and it doesn't show me a response. It's got 40 foot tile spacing. That's not it. And you go through all these things and you still maybe can't answer why. And where I'm going with this is I think a lot of our environment impacts the way our soil responds and potentially it's a soil health play. So we've previously had some episodes with solum and the DNA extraction that we're working on there. And I think one of the things that we're gonna get really good at in the future, maybe five, 10 years down the road, is how to identify what soil is as far as a health perspective. And then maybe, hopefully, how to change it. You know, what can we do to get better? And environmentally, that's important with the weather changes, because I think that's going to change the way that the culture of the bacteria and the fungus that are living in the soil. So picking up those spots and being able to critically think about, okay, here's, where, here's the weather events, here's the flora fauna that are living there. How might we influence that acre to give us some productivity that we haven't seen at it? So I think that's going to be an important aspect with these changing weather patterns in the future that we're probably going to be a lot more aware of, that we just haven't had access to that amount of information in the past.
0: Yeah, you know, the, the big term there, we talk about soil DNA, we talk about the microbiome and how that microbiome may be shifting in a, a higher yield environment or a lower yield environment to incorporate a different species a different spectrum of microbiome on the consumer side I actually saw the first consumer product advertising on TV about the health of your personal microbiome and it was actually a, a soap commercial advertising that you know this soap was particularly less harsh on your skin's microbiome which is your, your you know your body's natural microbiome and it's very similar to what you're talking about is you know the sensitivity of the yield environments microbiome to the different practices and
1: shifts weather patterns. Mm -hmm. Because you brought up carbon sequestration and this whole residue thing, I thought I I should have to add that in there. The other thing with this microbiome that you made me think of now is a lot of times we're putting fertilizer down and we're just treating maybe the soil or thinking of the soils. Hey, put the P and K there. I put the nitrogen there. I put sulfur there. Like, why isn't my plant, it should just take it up. But we don't realize that the soil has to digest and use those nutrients and release them back to the plant. So understanding your microbiome, maybe the soap commercial, we could probably learn something from that and apply it into agriculture and test it and see what we find.
0: You know, so speaking of testing, uh, John, I'm going to give you a hypothetical here. Your great-grandfather has passed away and left you with a huge amount of money and a trust, and you're able to go buy land anywhere in the United States. And your objective as an agronomist is you're going to retire early and go farm, which I think that at Winfield United, I find that a lot of the the people, you know, work here also dream about farming or farm in their personal time. Where would you go buy land in the United States? because you think it has the biggest opportunity for yield to increase based on the environment and the genetics that are becoming available? I'll only answer that if you answer it. Okay, I'll give you my answer. My answer is one of two places. I think in the areas where the Corn Belt is moving west, where rainfall is potentially becoming more abundant, in acres that are in wheat acres right now. But I actually think if I just took the genetics... You'd go north. Okay. So if you just took the genetics, one of the things north is exciting because north is primarily a climatological trend that you see, you know, more heat units available. Probably 10, 15 years ago, you saw the corn belt shift north because they finally found that high yield Iowa female that we used to breed a lot of corn to. And they shifted that into 80 day down into 75 day production. So you saw the corn belt shift way north, even over the border to Canada. But one of the other exciting things is maybe south. When I think about North Carolina having some production opportunities down there, we're getting this tropical germplasm in, which typically had a lot of good disease tolerance, but they're starting to get yield potential out of that tropical germplasm as well. And so there's some potential for the Corn Belt to shift to actually be able to take on some of those more, I don't want to say tropical South Carolina environments, but tropical compared to, you know, mid-Iowa comparatively. So so I don't know. I, I would go at the extreme end of the, the northwest or southeast of the Corn Belt and shift there. Southeast based on genetics and breeding, northwest based on climate changes.
1: So I guess I was basing my initial answer off of climate changes and where I thought it was going to go. And north more north than west would have maybe been my answer. Although if you go too far Far north is just going to be rocks and pine trees and a lot of just glacier Canadian Shield. But if you go a little bit more west, I think climate change, but then opportunity. You know the acres are there, and and we made well. Here's where the weed acres were. But I truly think that eventually the productivity and the opportunity that you have, if you do have some heat units and a little bit more rain, could turn that ground into something that would probably be the new corn belt. So that glacial shield. If I run into a moose, have I gone too far? Well. Yes, probably so. Yep. If you start finding antler sheds when you're in the spring, when you're thinking about working up some of that popple forest and planting corn into it, probably you went too far. No. Is that what it was like growing up on the farm in in, in the northern Minnesota area? Yeah, you go shed hunting until
0: you it's ready to plant. We just picked rocks. <laughs> well, I had plenty of that too. Okay, so we're on the topic here of, you know, how the effect of long-term weather patterns change things. We have talked a little bit about some of the climate patterns, you know, some of the agronomic factors. But, John, there's this other trend that I see happening. And, you know, as I work inside of digital transformation and, and technology, let me list off a couple of companies for you that didn't exist five years ago. The Climate Corporation, which is now owned by uh, Bayer Company. ZX, which is now owned by BASF. It's actually a weather company that BASF bought. AgriClime, which is a climate-based crop insurance program that Syngenta offers. And then Granular, which actually offers weather stations to farmers to monitor their local conditions, brought to you by Corteva. Winfield United using weather providers like Iteris, MDA, and DTN for various weather services, including, you mentioned the FieldNet, John Deere weather stations that we use in the answer plots. None of those things existed 10 years ago inside of the egg chemical, the, the crop protection industry as it stands. What do you make of
1: that? So I think this might get into the next few episodes that we might have on the amount of data but i think what we find is at least with the ability to look at and use and touch and feel all those tools is you get a better gut feeling or trend of where things are going and how to make the decision. Without having that information, you maybe go, oh, this is the way it feels, next year will be more normal. Now we can actually step back and use all those tools, use that data collection ports to say, hey, this is what we're actually seeing, and now it's an informed decision on how to make a management technique across that acre versus just a, hey, this is my gut feeling and this is what I think. So you made a long list, I didn't know all of them. I knew some of them and I utilized some of them, but I definitely know all of them. And I'm sure that you probably didn't list all of them because there's probably a lot more out there that are dealing with weather. So, and there's your printed off slide deck that you gave in a piece of paper to me across the way Yeah, um, that is very full. It's the
0: mixing bowl. And I don't know that I'm going to have a seizure just by looking at it, but the volume of technology companies from IoT platforms, precision irrigation, water monitoring, crop management software, robotics, processing technology, post-harvest monitoring. When you look at this chart, you can see some really emerging trends. But I would say, and this is just my own personal identification with this, I would say, 80 to 90% of the companies that I'm looking at in technology have weather involved in them in some basic way, shape, or form. And I, and I look at one of the big players, IBM, actually just purchased the weather company here a year or two ago. And you know they're trying to make a big play into agriculture because they're trying to provide their weather insights on top of your data sets that would help you make decisions on that. I look at the Microsoft FarmBeats platform, which is a, a cloud based platform that is bringing in weather insights and, and allowing you to do artificial intelligence, machine learning right in the cloud on those pieces. And even GCP, Google Cloud Providers, they have APIs available for weather information, AWS, Amazon Web Services. All of these companies have really strong undertones of you know, the ability to connect your proprietary information with weather information to let it interact with the historical weather forecast, but also the future trend of weather modeling.
1: Yeah, so the way I look at a lot of these tech platforms and the way that we look at these trends is go, okay, that's great but how do I make a decision going forward off of that? And I think that's the key. It's maybe not we can take this in season, and maybe some of these are, hey, in season, it's time to make a nitrogen application. Maybe some of these are, but I think the big thing is here's what we have going forward in the future. How are you going to adjust your operation to fit? Is it a rotation? Is it maybe bigger machinery? Is it a change in tillage practice the way we started it? Because if you're not using, say, one, two, or three of these things, I think that's the next step is to implement these things to help you make the decision. Um, Kind of the big craze, and we haven't added this one in here yet, but was the cover crops. And climate really affects the way the cover crops are, not to mention herbicides and tillages and everything else. But I think this would be something Somewhat helpful to say, hey, this is where I can and can't go with it, and how do you see the trends of what that industry is doing based on the data to overlay on your acres? Because in the past, it's just been, hey, Minnesota, Iowa, whatever. Now you got on a per acre scale. Um, we know that in every little state or or zone, there's little hot spots here. I'm thinking of one where, hey, I got a hot spot in my area that they can grow 100-day corn and nobody around them even wants to put in 102-day. So they are, excuse me, 110-day corn and nobody around them wants to even put in 102-day. So we know that there's little spots within our, each of our geography that we can trend and do these things differently. And recognizing them gives us full potential as they move through the season, as they move through the the weather patterns to make those decisions going forward.
0: Yeah, and that was actually a, a place, uh, the, the answer plots actually have done... Uh, and, uh, a machine learning based uh, uh, mapping exercise to figure out where answer plots should fit uh, where we have over-representation or under-representation of answer plots. Now, I personally live on the north, excuse me, on the southeast side of the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, and I'm between two rivers. Uh, I'm between the Mississippi and the St. Croix in about a, a, you know, a 30 mile area, and I receive more heat units than, you know, a lot of times, uh, a town that's south of me or on the same latitude. And, and so there's there's these little microclimates that I think we're beginning to unlock uh, you know, rather than just saying, well, you know, I'm 20 miles east of this town, it should be the same climate. There's a lot of nuances there that we're, we're starting to unlock with the power of uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, that's giving us uh, access to the changing weather environments. You know, one of the particularly shocking pieces uh, was there was a, a plot in the thumb of Wisconsin. Most Wisconsinites will hold up their hand to, to tell you where they were from. I'm from down there and the Green Bay Packers play up here. Got it. Well, one of the plots over by the Green Bay Packers, you know, was actually most environmentally like a plot all the way over in western southwestern Minnesota, where they make Toro lawnmowers over by Worthington, Minnesota. And I never would have thought of cross-comparing the data sets and the performance of those hybrids because climatologically they were the they had the most similar Combination of factors, and I think that's one of the places that you know the, the true data science of hybrid placement is going to come into play. And, and looking at this long list of of uh, companies that are invested in that, I really think that that you know being able to know what the weather patterns are and overlay that on top of your data set is one of the things that's going to differentiate our data platform and our ability to help farmers make decisions with that and certainly you know those those basic manufacturers and some of the big tech companies see that trend as well
1: mm-hmm. so very well said Joel just one thing that uh, we didn't touch on as much is and you skimmed it was how important is it going to be for this genetic play? I mean, I think, I mean, we didn't really talk a lot about that, but genetics are probably not going to be that big. I think genetics are going to be huge. In fact, so, so, I mean, that's what I was like. I think that's going to be probably the, the biggest thing, right? And on all these things like tillage practice and nutrient placement, all this other stuff, I think where you can go in this, in this, weather trending is all going to be a lot of genetic opportunity that has been untapped.
0: Yeah. So I I follow a guy, uh, Tim Williamson on Twitter, uh, and he is uh, one of the breeders uh, for for bear uh, that actually, he's not so much a breeder as much as a data scientist. And he puts forth this uh, this star galaxy map of all the parent material uh, of the genetic lines. And it's at that moment where you realize They've mapped the universe of genetic potential, and now it's just an algorithmic way of pairing these things together to achieve the, the best male and female combinations. You go, well, this is really, really cool. But one of, the, one of the recent things I see on genetic potential coming out isn't so much just the regular corn that you and I are used to, where it's really tall and you know might be six, eight feet tall, is the opportunity for short corn. And so we talked about where would be the best place in the country to buy land. When you look at short corn, you know, the corn doesn't have to, you know, one of the things that Bayer is coming out with uh, is in their pipeline, they've talked about in their investor deck, is, is the advent of short corn. Corn that is a few feet shorter in stature, but has the same, if not more, yield potential in, inside of that. And you think about all the physical characteristics of, you know, a plant needing to move water, not needing to move water as far up, maybe uh, being able to spray that crop multiple times, mm. being able to, uh, you know, go in three, four five times and, and spoon feed, uh, macronutrients, uh, adjust micronutrients based on plant tissue sampling, uh, and maybe even, uh, being able to use growth regulators in ways that, you know, prior to this, we really had two timing windows. It was either when it was short or or, you know, and and it was at knee-high, or at tassel time when we were gonna put a fungicide on, and all of a sudden, you know, short corn opens up this huge opportunity
1: for us to manage the crop. Mm So, so yeah, that was one of the items there that I had listed and, and I think you you nailed it spot on as far as where you can go with that. One thing that I got to ask you a question here as, as we go forward and, and cause you asked me, Hey, where would you, where would you buy land? My question to you is, so you, so you found your spot, right? You went North, you went West, wherever you maybe went South because you're putting some betting money on the tropical genetics. When you get there, how are you going to change what you do for future generations? I mean, because we're talking, I mean, you and I are thinking, well, hey, guess what? We maybe got 30 30 more tries at this, but... Downstream, thirty years from now, what's it gonna be? Where, how are you gonna change that for future generations? And how can some of these growers start setting that that up in the process? You, know, Have you thought I, about that at all?
0: Yeah, so so I think a lot about this, and you you know that I, I work on a daily basis with uh, Jason Weller in the True Terra Insights Group, and what we're doing there to try to improve. The ability for data to come across on the, your Decision Ag tool platforms, like Field Forecasting Tool and R7, are are connected to the data silo, which allows that data, you know, with the with the farmer's permission, to go across into the True Terra Insights engine, and that allows me to quantify what some of those long term opportunities are, like uh, building soil health, building, uh, you know, soil structure, and being able to, you know, even try to reduce the amount of topsoil. Runoff that I've got on my farm. So I think that's one of the very first things. And I think I actually saw a, a venture capital investment firm that has started to make that commitment towards acquiring land or at least helping farmers acquire land to to install. You know more sustainable production practices on that. so i'm already i already seen that in the land acquisition space of producers that are aiming towards that, that they start out with the foundation of their their farming operation being, you know I'm going to make this ground. Uh, you know I'm going to go on a, a continuous journey of improvement for sustainability and going after things like reducing greenhouse gases, doing more carbon sequestration, and you know reducing nutrient runoff, uh, reducing leaching. Improving your 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 uh, pest management uh, by reducing the the amount of uh, herbicide, insecticide, fungicide uh, you know drift off target movement, which is what our whole River Falls lab is based on. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that is that's a new foundation for anybody who's probably you know if you've got if you've got 39 crops left to plant. You probably already have a strong attitude towards towards going down that road. It's just from talking with some of the young farmers, the growers of tomorrow that I've talked to, they have a high lens for uh, the journey of continuous improvement.
1: So the biggest thing for me about this True Terra Insights is, and you listed some of the, the items that can be used within that system to accomplish, is all these for me are small, actionable items that are actually achievable, right? They're accomplishments that you can say, hey, this is a small thing that we can do to make it one step better master that and let's go to the next thing and it helps rank a lot of that out too so it's not just this confusing long laundry list of holy smokes i got a lot of work to do and how the heck am i going to get it done it's hey start here and let's work to this level when we get to this level here's the boxes or items that we need to accomplish to get to the next level so i think that really puts some action items down on paper where we can make this you know make it work and feel like we're achieving something and progressing that acre
0: yeah, any anything, you know, and speaking in the software development space, you know, anything that we try to do in development, we try to have KPIs, key performance indicators around that. And I think this is just the evolution that farmers are going to be developing KPIs that go beyond field profitability and go beyond, you know, bushels produced. And and those KPIs are additional, you know, things of measuring what you're trying to manage. You've been listening to the Deal With Yield podcast. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us online or on your podcast app. And for more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com.